crew of Discovery One consists of five men and one of the latest generation of the HAL 9000 computers. Three of the five men were put aboard asleep, or to be more precise, in a state of hibernation. They were Dr. Charles Hunter, Dr. Jack Kimball, and Dr. Victor Kaminsky. We spoke with Mission Commander Dr. David Bowman and his deputy, Dr. Frank Poole. Well, good afternoon, gentlemen. How's everything going? Marvelous. Have no... <laughs> we have no complaints. Well, I'm very glad to hear that, and I'm sure that the entire world would join me in wishing you a safe and successful voyage. Thanks very much. Thank you. Space Policy. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. After getting into the innards of our friend Hal, we're looking inside the Discovery One this week, and it's a fascinating ship. We talked about the wheel in our first slash second episode, and this is the other wheel that people think of and commonly conflate with the Space Station 5 wheel. And uh, it's actually the round part of the Discovery module. And we can see it looks like uh, other scientists in hibernation, um, they're being kind of put into this coma-like sleep and essentially kept alive during the super long journey while Frank and Bowman just, you know, make sure that everything is running properly and make sure that their trajectory is good. And as we come to find out pretty quickly, they're, they're going to have to perform some maintenance on the vessel to, to make sure the mission doesn't go critical. But yeah, it, it's a very cool futurism that kind of builds off, like you said, the Space Station 5, but the idea of this ability to have some sort of artificial gravity is so helpful for the human body to keep it healthy and um, it gives them an opportunity to you know probably get some exercise for mental health as well too mm -hmm. you see they spend a lot of time walking and running yeah because otherwise you're just standing and sitting yeah there's not many places to go and during those situations where they're in very very low gravity they probably are just like wanting to feel that that reassuring mm -hmm. you know, get a little oxygen in the brain yeah. get some blood flowing sure and god knows that it is absolutely necessary for um for so many things especially your digestion and your digestion's already compromised with the gravity mm -hmm. situation anyway having some artificial gravity and steady movement can work some things out even if you're on meat paste it still takes a little while to move but I was just thinking soft serve. <laughs> soft serve meat paste. Oh. We've got that soft serve pink slime in the commissary here. But that we're not sure where that pink slime came from. Especially since Sector 5 was downsized and we never saw anybody leave the station. <laughs>
18 months later, we get the text, and that's our cue for the Discovery mission. But we're going to Jupiter, so we open on the ship floating to the strains of Cachaturian's Guyane Ballet Suite, the Adagio movement. Then you have this floating dreamlike element of that music with this floating magic trick of choreography. We have shifting perspectives. You're always, you're caught off guard by the perspective changing to something else. Finding out you're upside down, quote unquote, or finding out that what you're looking at is actually from the other direction. A lovely piece of music that has been mimicked several times or evoked several times in other suspense sci-fi movies since most notably James Horner's score for Aliens. If you listen to that slow string music of the beginning and end titles, it's very much based on that. They probably had it as a temp track and gave it to him, you know, to work with. Mm -hmm. And this another excuse to watch Aliens again. When Kier walks up to me, it takes, what, 20 seconds or 15 seconds? That was almost one week of work. That's how complicated this movie was, because I'm strapped in, and Stanley tells me to start eating, and all the food kept falling out of the dish 60 feet to the floor below. And with such a pristine white set, uh, the day's work was, I mean, it took took an entire day to clean all this stuff out of the centrifuge. And it fell two or three times, and finally they gave me like some cereal, which I despise. So the first time we see Dave Bowman and Frank Poole together, they're eating a tray full of creamed corn. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. It's better than the straws, I think we can agree. Mm -hmm. It's an upgrade. I love that food plays such a huge part in this movie. <laughs> it really is about a third of the film. Uh, <laughs> when we really look at the screen, I mean, it's a star. You know, we, we yeah. could even at the very we end, three, four meals, mm-hmm. four meals. Uh, but yeah, no, it is this uh, colored slop that's been <laughs> pressed in. <laughs> Plato likened in these, uh, you know, very uh, stark army ration looking trays. And uh, they're just going at it. It works for me because I've always been a sucker for that anyway. Anything Play-Doh related or Play-Doh reminiscent. You know, like there's certain donuts and certain items from certain chain bakeries I get certain things from because they have the essence of Play-Doh. It reminds me of my childhood. I remember when we made uh, a Play-Doh-esque substance as a a school project. Mm. It was edible. That's wonderful. It was like a 
a flower and yeah, basic pioneer play dough. I, I used I mean, to make pioneer really, play dough. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. Oh, um, you could eat it. It's like basically salt hard and flour. Tack, and it's hard tack. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's basically hard. Mm-hmm. Hard tack chicory and prunes. That's what I used to grow up with down on the farm. Not a well balanced. <laughs> no, no. But generations to come with my DNA will be regular for life. For the, yeah, you'll be good for the rest of your life. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so they're they're kind of checking out the peas and potatoes and I don't know, I guess it's some kind of meat meat paste. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's uh, Sunday Sunday lunch. You know, it probably is because there's gravy, it looks like, mm-hmm. in the little side tray. But they're just gravy means Sunday. Having a little chow down, chow down powwow. And, uh, and watching keeping the, themselves keeping on the TV. News. Yeah. They're um, celebrities now. And, you know, even, even Hal gets a little interview. And the interview really reveals a lot about Hal's character. He has these human-like tendencies and mannerisms that separate him from just like a talking computer. Like the way he elevates and, and diminishes his voice. It seems very sincere. It, You know, a lot of our talking digital assistants even today as much as they can tweak the voice it it just still it feels very primitive and not responsive and Hal almost has like a personality that contradicts his uh, physical being many many people pointed out that Hal is much more human acting than Frank or Dave Mm mm-hmm that is an intentional piece of direction that was apparently given with something in their character bios about them receiving training to be steely-eyed missile men, yeah. essentially. And if you listen to... Stay frosty. <laughs> Sorry. But if you listen to correspondence between you know NASA and Houston or when they do spacewalks, the radio chatter and all the vernacular that they use, it's very cut and dry and to the point, and they're essentially programmed to perform these tasks robotically because there is no room for error you know you risk yourself and your crewmates and uh, they know they've got a job to do and they put human emotion and identity away and i watched an iss spacewalk live on youtube a couple weeks ago that was really mesmerizing just having it on in the back while i was working was astonishing i mean this is like a seven hour day from start to finish from suiting up to getting back in with the the seals tightened it's very very slow progress and apparently very demanding on them because they're subjected to extreme temperatures and even though their suits can you know help regulate that you're, you're you're straining even to just turn simple tools and attach things. That's exactly right. And you have three or four people on comm in Mission Control working on the most practical way for you to move your body and set the tool in a position where you can access it without flipping around and spending two or three minutes getting straightened out again yeah and you see what how long it takes for them to suit up and when when dave goes out it's a long and not tedious but what's 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 your word that tenuous it's it's um precise it's precision surgically precise movements you gotta push yourself to where you're gonna float to land where you want to be you gotta find a place to hook on which way you're going to turn. Thankfully, they have the magnetic locks so you've got a, a magnet to put your metal things yes. on while you... 
so you don't lose that immediately and have to call call for help and mm-hmm. jeopardize somebody else's life yes. for a backup. And, and Dave doesn't have a mission control with a bunch of people to tell him how to do you know, He's been trained to do this. He and Frank both, they, they, they look like they've done this a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and they're only able to send and receive transmissions. And at this point, it's taking a very long time for those messages to get back and forth. <laughs> it would be an endless spacewalk, right? I mean, it, by the time it would take just to answer and receive questions. Yeah, whole dig you a spy. So. Yeah. <laughs> okay, umbilical is now clear. Okay, copy. And did you just stash the red on your mini workstation? It's on my Perfect. Thanks so much. NASA astronaut Nicole Mann is there in the upper middle of your screen in the spacesuit with the red stripes. She's carrying some equipment with her. Japanese astronaut Koichi Wakata is still in the airlock, working his way on getting all of the equipment that he needs and working on egressing or exiting the airlock. Excuse me, Frank. What is it, Hal? We've got the transmission from your parents coming in. Well, fine. Could you put it on here, please? Take me in a bit. Certainly. Hello, Frank. Happy birthday, darling. Happy birthday. Many happy returns of the day. Glad to hear you doing well. Yeah, Mother and I are both feeling wonderful, too. Ray and Sally were going to be here, too, but at the last minute, Ray's back went bad on them again. How do you like your cake, dear? Looks great, doesn't it? Sorry you can't join us. Oh, I ran into Bob the other day. He said to be sure and wish you happy birthday. All my students made me promise to send their best wishes, too. You know, they talk about you all the time in the classroom. Frank, you're a big celebrity in the second grade. You know, we were on television last week. Oh, yes, yes. Your mother and I and Dave's parents were interviewed about what we thought of our illustrious son. <laughs> you can imagine what we told them. I think it's being broadcast next Thursday. Perhaps you'll be able to listen in. Oh, we were thrilled about Elaine and Bill, dear. I'll be glad to get the present for you, but please tell me how much I can spend. Oh, yes, Frank, about your AGS-19 payments, I think I've straightened it out for you. I talked to the accounting office in Houston yesterday, and they said that you should be receiving your higher rates of pay by next month. Well, Frank, I can't think of anything else to say oh, now. Oh, give our love today. Oh, yes, be sure and give my best regards. We wish you the very happiest of birthdays. God bless. All the best, son. Happy, Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Frank. Happy birthday to you. See you next Wednesday. Happy birthday, Frank. Thank you, Al. <clears throat> Bit flatter, please. We see some of the amenities that the ship has. We see Frank Poole at a tanning bed, hanging out, listening to a, or watching a birthday video greeting from Mr. and Mrs. Poole, his parents. I love his sunglasses in this scene. They're fantastic. Yes. Yeah, his little um, those yeah. clear orange, total cover like um, like from the workshop glasses. <laughs> yeah, so I'm wondering if he's actually getting a tan at all. You know, that's a good point. It's probably just 
artificial vitamin. I wondered if it if it's just he needs if you need UV so you don't get scurvy. Yeah. Yeah, vitamin D. You just need to get the light. Kind of like, you know, how in... Well, it's from an episode of Northern Exposure, but I think it's a real thing. The light therapy thing where people have a little device on their heads, a little strap beam down light yeah. into their eyes to give them a little lift, you know? I think they have lamps that you can buy if you experience, like, seasonal affective disorder mm-hmm. that mimic, you know, sunlight and... yeah. You can sit beside it to help balance out, you know, any kind of chemical imbalance. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because... Because there is no day or night cycle in space. (laughs) So how are you keeping a regular sleep cycle? I have no idea. Keeping a quote 24-hour shifts. And and that wouldn't be productive for them either. I think having them both awake during the journey is smart because... You know, the social interaction will mm-hmm. keep them from not losing their sanity. I mean, yeah. I like my alone time, don't get me wrong, but if you're spending months at a time without talking to another mm-hmm. soul, I mean, we all saw what happened on uh, <laughs> an island with our, our, our good man. I mean, because on the ISS, is that an issue with diurnal slashes versus nocturnal? I mean, people keep you know, I'm not sure. the same shift. Um, it, it sounds and then like just people sleep for eight hours and nothing happens. I don't think they sleep for eight hours. I think they sleep in rotations. It, it would be very difficult, I think, to have a regular sleep cycle. They basically get a sunrise every what thirty minutes to an hour, or something <laughs> like that. It's pretty wild. Yeah, that that could really. I imagine it takes some getting used to. Your circadian rhythm would be so out of balance when you come mm-hmm. back to Earth. That I mean. Not to mention gravity, too. Yeah. Oh, man. You would probably sleep for like a week when you came yeah, back you probably from would. a mission like that. Oh, man. Yeah. On the Discovery, though, I guess there's probably you could, right? Like eight hours where they could both be asleep and Hal's just, you know. Running the ship. Exactly. I mean, he's running the ship anyway. Yeah. So. They only need to be there for their activities, such as playing chess, we see Frank do with yeah. Hal some uh, charcoal sketching looks like some freehand drawing yeah that's going on, so. um apparently his own apparently um that that's was so cool. uh, cure delays nice i wonder if those are on somebody's wall or i wonder i bet he's gonna <laughs> with the wheel if i was him i would still have them yeah exactly oh man <laughs> <laughs> the wheel itself too i mean we should say when we're on the subject was a spinning set like it was a moving set on a big gimbal mm-hmm the the centrifuge was built as a complete 360 rotating hamster wheel is that you can the see tunnel scene of. where they're when uh frank and bowman are well that's a good point there were several times then where that was used because they do it for the the scenes where they're yeah where they're rotating from one corridor into another one that's spinning the art director of 2001 a space odyssey is tony masters for nearly two years, he has labored to bring the ideas and designs of artists and engineers into being. Here, he works on a model of the centrifuge, a vital section of the spacecraft in which important sequences of the film will be played. The centrifuge posed an unprecedented design and engineering challenge. And the challenge was met by Vickers Armstrong, one of Britain's largest aircraft manufacturers, who constructed this strange, intriguing centrifuge. 
riding in the middle of the centrifuge. You can see a little bit of the crease here. See between the two halves, there's a seam down the middle below my feet. The camera is on a very thin mount. And as it, now here I'm slightly up. So I'm kind of running downhill. I'm giving the appearance that I'm running on the bottom. There I'm slightly up the side of the centrifuge. A centrifuge is on the very bottom. It's so heavy that the camera, so when the camera is traveling with me, it's just a normal tracking shot. When the camera is on the titanium mount in a fixed position on the wheel, it appears as if I am indeed running around the ship. If you can imagine a giant Ferris wheel, except completely enclosed, instead of being able to see through a latticework, all the lights and so on that lit everything up in there were on the outside of this. Now here's a beautiful shot. Kier walks, he climbs down. As you see, the camera's in a fixed position. He walks away and he walks all the way around and the, and the wheel is slowly moving walks all the way around to where I'm eating. This Ferris wheel was probably two or three stories high. I don't remember the exact height. And, um, and it could be separated. If you could imagine taking a yo-yo um, a apart in the, and, and, and you, you, so that he could shoot angles. For some sequences, right near my foot, my right foot, about a foot toward the center, there is a, in, in the pattern in the floor, that actually is where it's separated. But sometimes, for certain sequences, they would have to poke a camera up through that crack and close it, and we would have to turn on our, our own camera and then stand back, and they would begin to revolve the, uh, the centrifuge. It is a 38-ton colossus. And its great complexity demands a drastically new approach to directing, lighting, and photography. To accomplish the effect of weightlessness, cameras are placed in radically unorthodox mounts. Optical engineers had to design equipment which would meet the requirements of Kubrick's bizarre and incisive imagination. The person in on, on, on the camera was basically sitting on in a uh, on a swing or a, a ski lift chair you know so it's just on a yeah. hinge and there is no yeah so it's basically dead center the whole time and, and everything it, else yeah, rotates around it exactly that's so cool and then for the other ones where you're seeing from underneath then there's a camera down below the set under a slat that can then move up as he's running past i gotcha or they'll dolly across the and they've got just enough time to track and shoot that whole yes. sequence until the camera arc. gets in and then they have to yes. stop and reset, they have to and, stop and reset. Oh, cool that is very engineered <laughs> well and for all that time there's all those panels in the background with displays mm -hmm. those displays were all individually projected on individual projectors oh my gosh so doug trumbull made like individual five minute animations for each one of the projectors 16 millimeter projectors but when the set turns suddenly the screens turn also and now when you're supposed to be right side up they read as being upside down 
So, much like with the anchoring the cameraman on a swing chair, they decided the best way to take care of this was to actually rig two projectors. Oh my God. So there's, there's one right side up and there's one upside down. So that when the set spins and the screen slip clicks back into, you know, is lined up properly, yeah. then it's, it's seamless. I mean, the result is very, very. There's screens all over the place. I know. And every one and of those is an crazy. individual projector mm -hmm. threaded up. So every time that those reels run out, guess what? Somebody's got to go back there, wind that film out, rethread every one of those projectors for the next take. See, now all these screens that you're looking at, they're not television screens. They are 16 millimeter projectors strapped onto the outside of the centrifuge. And they are all running. So it, you know, it wasn't, uh, it was a, you know, inside it was quiet and reasonable, but outside, outside with all those machines running at one time was quite noisy. Dr. Poole, what's it like while you're in hibernation? Kubrick was the kind of fellow who would have the monitor that was beside me as I'm eating. He, he would make that as real as possible. And he wanted us to react to it. So it had been shot first. He tried to uh, get the voice of mission control was indeed an Air Force traffic control fella who uh, they found. And he, he plays the voice of mission control. Because Kubrick's like, he's playing music on set. Yeah. He's very into interaction. You got all the screens and the buttons and, you know, immersion. I don't think it would have worked for the actors to be in a much less sterile environment than they already were and having all those really really interesting consoles and like you said projections of, of you know, what's probably just generic data that they could pull up on any console but it gives a lot of life to the ship it does every every one of those was very specific five minute rolls of film on each one of those projection screens the interactivity for the actors provides the same kind of sense of immersion that you get from the film because they're immersed in it you get a sense of realism because they feel a sense of realism and when you you can tell when somebody's into it yeah you know when they're really selling something because it's just the way it is, you know? Oh, I imagine getting into that suit, you know, before the mm. pod scene in that fully built set with all the lighting and everything, that had to have been wildly immersive. They both talk, uh, Gary and Kier both talk about the level of just awe and the detail yeah. that they were experiencing every day. The only thing to distract you from it is when you're on the 360 set and there's and you got gaffers walking around below you with a big hard hat on because there's lights exploding and, you know, things falling, falling off every set, time yeah. they're spinning the set around. Gigantic torture chamber, <laughs> beautiful set design. But the outside's beautiful, too. It's a beautiful ship that is kind of the basis for every starship that we've seen since. A lot of, uh, I guess, long voyage vessels take this kind of like space train approach you know colony ships and everything they have several different modules that are strung together to show i don't know a sense of scale I, I think it would make more sense to keep it like that for long distance and you have less potential of 
striking something, you know, making yourself a smaller projectile. It's a nuclear-fueled ship. So originally, it was supposed to be propelling itself by just exploding nuclear bombs. That was a proposed travel for definitely interstellar, but possibly interstellar travel. They were going to potentially make a ship that could detonate nuclear bombs behind it, and it would ride the propel. <laughs> and because there's no, you know air friction or anything that like that to slow you down the acceleration would compound every time just farting radioactive oh explosions goodness. that's so wild that that is a real thing um project orion wow yeah. orion imagine 1940s. that it's the 1940s i wonder if orion spacecraft was a reference to that because it was surely nuclear powered as well nuclear pulse propulsion Pulse propulsion. Pulse propulsion. Pulse propulsion. <laughs> well, apparently this is only 86 at the last minute after Kubrick started hard in the development phase and realized that he had made such a big statement with Dr. Strangelove uh, that the last thing he wanted to do was to have the, this cool new sci-fi spaceship that has ex- cool exploding atomic bombs. Yeah. So we'll stick with fusion technology as our propulsion. That makes sense. But that's still, you know, now here we are in 2023 and we're talking realistically about fusion in the future. So who who would have thought? The inherent news value of 2001 A Space Odyssey has attracted reporters, photographers and newsmen from all over the world. They come to talk, to record and to interview. Here, Kier DeLay talks to reporters about his role in the film. The picture is being done in such a gigantic scope, both in terms of its subject, in terms of the sets being built. Uh, I understand that it has one of the largest uh, art department collections uh, uh, in the history of motion pictures. The centrifuge uh, is so realistic and so unusual, after a while you begin to forget that you're an actor and you begin to really feel like an astronaut. And in terms of uh, working with uh, Stanley Kubrick, who is surely one of the giants of our industry, as far as direction is concerned. And I think even more importantly to me personally, the opportunity I have to play such a gigantic figure in our history, in our present history, because I think that an astronaut truly is one of the, uh, the heroes of our times, just as Daniel Boone was in uh, the early American history, and as Ulysses was in ancient history. Ulysses, by the way, would be the greatest analogy I can think of to this character, because I play the part of uh, Captain... Uh, uh, Dave Bowman, who's the commander of this ship. So can we talk about the hair? Because this this whole sequence had to have taken weeks to shoot. And we've got a crew member that has forgone having his own hair, and they've opted to wig him. Yeah, so Cure Delay's wearing a wig. Apparently Kubrick didn't want to mess with hair continuity. I guess there were so many other different kinds of continuity, so much effects continuity. Everybody was like, they probably had bought up all the Polaroid film in England at that point. They, <laughs> they couldn't waste any more on the hair. Yeah. So they decided, yeah, that he was going to be bald in, in the end anyway mm-hmm. as an old man. So they decided to just have that wig. And it's interesting because in 2010, it looks like it's the same it's wig. It's the same. It has to be the same wig identical but in this blu-ray version of it you can definitely it is wildly noticeable Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
It really is. <laughs> he, he really looks more like I, I always wondered as a kid, like how what it reminded me of, and and especially when you look at it on the Blu-ray and in the Blu-ray of 2010, it's Lego Man. He's got Lego hair. Yeah, it's very much a Lego wig. Yeah. You know, Plonked the ultimate him. Lego way, because it's actually the same cut, pretty much, just with a little less of a swoop. A little bit more of that so. 60s swinging astronaut. No hair continuity. But 60s swinging astronaut is exactly what Frank Poole is, and mm-hmm. he played it that way. He was a little bit more of a... a uh, maverick. Maverick. He was he was playing the Top Gun. Mm-hmm. He was definitely doing the flyboy yeah. routine. And he's a little bit more smart mouth with Hal. A little bit more cantankerous. Yeah, artist. you can tell, because there's very uh you know calculative responses between all their conversations and it's it's all because they've been trained for this mission probably for years and i'm sure both of them come from either military background or uh, maybe some kind of flight background and even even if you are uh, very confident in your abilities you're still going to want to communicate as precisely as you can and uh, make sure that you you don't jeopardize Mm -hmm. anything but they both come across as very emotionally under wraps Mm -hmm. for sure you know they've put aside a lot of their humanity it looks like for this mission but you're right there there is a distinct kind of style and uh frank's hair yeah He's a little cocky. Gary Lockwood really plays him up. He was he's always talking about how he's a California surfer kid and you know, that's the way he kind of it plays. I think that's what Kubrick through. liked mm-hmm. about him. And it's a nice contrast, you know, because Kier Delay is I mean, Dave is is, is you know, it's not goofus and gallant. Yeah. But he's but very buttoned up. He's the more buttoned up of the two. Mm-hmm. And there's also Gary or Kier one mention in the commentary they're also playing it like they really they've been on this for months they really don't have much to say to each other anymore no no there's very little chit chat I mean I, I what imagine, is there to talk about yeah what else can you talk about because all that's happening is nothing I mean you're just keeping systems going it's got to be mundane I watched this BBC documentary on my iPad today yeah I watched you watch it from across the room I mean what are you going to (laughs) say and their library probably wasn't nearly as robust no exactly yeah they watched Skidoo oh man and they're they probably have like a a physical you know maybe like a reading library too yeah exactly they've both read all the books and yeah there's just there's nothing to talk about, so they're just keeping it professional. Yeah, they, they've read the latest Bennett Surf joke fest, and that's all there is. <laughs> Coming in to make vertical landing, Father. Welcome home, son. Sorry not to have a big reception party to meet you after your leave. We've got a major rescue operation in hand. Okay, Father, I understand. I hope I'll be able to help, too. Five, four, three, two, one. Thunderbirds are go. Thank <laughs> you. 
about a little bit before with the Orion and Base Station 5, but uh, kit mashing. Yeah. And using pieces from model kits. We embellished all the models with little tiny bits of plastic molding because of the detail. It's the detail in the molding that made the models, apart from the shapes, made the models look realistic. Brian Johnson, who went on to work on Alien uh, and The Empire Strikes Back, came from Thunderbirds, the great Jerry oh, Anderson. wonderful. And so he had gotten into that technique for those models, okay. building those. So he decided to go with, actually, Robert Watts, who was the uh, line producer on Star Wars and Indiana Jones trilogies, original trilogies, and he was the production manager on this. They went to a toy fair. There was this huge toy fair in Germany, and they hooked up with a couple of distributors, got permission to go to the factories and just go to the bins and where individual parts were made. Ooh, get the, some of those dishes. Ooh, get a bunch of those panels. So they oh got exactly what they wanted and yeah, really could that's fantastic. pick and choose. It does have a um, like a used universe mm-hmm. look to it. And a system. It looks thought out. It's not random pieces No, not that a look plot cool. on it. It definitely it's engineered. looks practical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And for something that abstract to look that engineered, when people aren't even used to looking at the first successful lunar mission yet, yeah. that that's something Very to impressive. convey. It was, what, about three meters mm-hmm. or so? Think so, about right. You can really lay on a lot of detail, yeah, and even minor bits of distressing, which then they would use in Star Wars to make the realism distressing. Just this adds. just looks fantastic in all lighting situations where its little parts cast shadows mm-hmm. back on the, the ship's hull. Yeah, I mean it. It just really pops in that stark star. They're basically yes. just in a, a sea of stars at that point. Mm-hmm. No point of context as far as light. There's just this omnipresent you know reflection of the sun probably yeah. off whatever they're closest to because the sun would just be a little little pinprick at that point wow can you imagine and then you really get a sense of the starkness of the harsh shadows and the sense of no diffusion no atmosphere yeah they did such a great job in the pod scene where they're clearly they must be getting close to some kind of stellar body because off camera there's like an angled light that when you see the ship spin just a little bit you can watch the travel of the shadows over the models it is it's fantastic and 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 when dave or when frank are in their suits floating Mm -hmm. and the ship is moving the 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 match of that light oh is perfect to the frame yeah, and this you with watch the Blu-ray. parts of their suit go dark as they tumble mm-hmm. and kind of roll out of it yeah the level of detail and it holds up like you know forget forget me about the wick jab everything else just looks absolutely incredible it's just a real testament to the the camera work and the the full set design just works on a level that i, I think they were they were going for stark yeah and desolate and it was kind of that maybe being out in sea and not being able to see a, a continent anywhere you know no landmass you, you are truly at the whim of you know your ship and the void around you <laughs> might as well play chess run some laps watch Take the ipad of it. got to get some rays or play some ping pong take a shower play the piano they have a piano Look at this keyboard. 
electronic keyboard. What? We're looking now at the Stanley Kubrick archives, edited oh, by Allison Castle from Tashin Books. What a shame. There's a note in here talking from Cure Delay, talking about how they had all these things that were filmed, but but not used not used didn't seem worth putting into the film but yeah i get it it's it is a uh, very tight window to get mm-hmm. everything you want to say in so yeah things like an offbeat what would he play oh man who knows yeah what was he playing that's a good question <sighs> is so that cool. why they were playing chopin is he supposed to have been playing a piece from he's, chopin? Even, he's even got some sheet music he does have sheet monitor. music doesn't he on the Oh, and it's on a monitor. But you've got panel like switches, so it's like an electronic organ. So let's see if we can make some of this out here. too fuzzy and from Clavius Base I'm Wes and I'm Brad signing off thank you bye 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 bye